Welcome to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast. Today we're speaking with Mexico-based journalist Juan Grillo, who covers drug trafficking empires, among other topics, in Latin America, and is the author of El Narco and most recently Gangster Warlords. He's working on a new book on gun trafficking. We'll be talking about what's going on uh, in Mexico and the drug wars. Bienvenido al programa de Geopolítica y Imperio, Juan. Un gusto. Saludos al, al público. Now, we've previously interviewed uh, folks such as uh, Osvaldo Zavala, who wrote a book called Los Carteles No Existen, The Cartels Don't Exist, about this idea that uh, you know the U.S. and the Mexican governments are have a big role uh, in the drug traffic empire. You know, in the 19th uh, century or, or the 18th, we had the, the British Empire involved in drug trafficking in, in China with the, with the opium uh, wars. Uh, and so folks like Osvaldo Zavala posit this idea that, at least initially, that the cartels were subordinate to, you know, the, the, the Mexican or U.S. Uh, state. You know, we know that the FBI helped to, Mexico to create its intelligence agency, I believe, in 1947. And then it was shut down because they were found to be running drugs and crime. And then it was reopened as CSEN, I think. Uh, and previously, we, I've also interviewed Jefferson Morley, who declassified files on how at least three Mexican presidents were paid CIA uh, agents, as well as we've interviewed Peter Dale Scott, um, the father of, you know, deep, deep politics. Uh, and he has suspected that even Carlos Gortari may have been uh, on the payroll. And then, you know, there's the other names like Gary Webb uh, and Rick Ross, who detail how the CIA was running cocaine to uh, with with the Nicaraguan Contras, and finally Alfred McCoy, who's worked on um, the history of the British and the French and the U.S. involved uh, in the drug trafficking in Southeast Asia. So, I mean, from the research that you've done and the large experience that you have, you know, was the drug traffic something that from the beginning was managed by? our governments in conjunction with the cartels or corrupt elements in our government, uh, and they've kind of lost control in the 2000s. I mean, there's a lot of these theories. Uh, how do you see this? The issue of the CIA involvement in drug trafficking, I think that is very well documented now, uh, at least the CIA allying with drug traffickers through all of these periods, and, and, and that's certainly a big factor in all of this. But also, if you look at the idea of cartels, the concept of cartels. I mean, as, as a word, you know, you, you see this coming up first in with the Medellin cartel, you know, being an idea. That it was because OPEC um, was known as the cartel that was big in the media a lot, a lot in that in that era in the 80s. And they were like, we're a cartel. I think it kind of gave this sound a bit like kind of OPEC. And it was always a bit of a, um, a loose construct of really what they are. Uh, and cartels have always been federations of criminals. When you go back to the history then, so if you look in, in Mexico, especially at the drug trafficking, you've had a mixture of private enterprise, you could call criminals, and the government, working with the government. And for a long time, the government had the upper hand in that relationship. So, you know, you go back, uh, you know, right through to the very first cases, and the United States started restricting opium and cocaine under the 1914 Harrison's Narcotics Tax Act. You know, very early, you can see in 1916, the first case looking at Mexico done by U.S. Customs. And that was a syndicate of Chinese Mexicans working with Chinese Americans taking opium 
from Mexico, from Sinaloa to the United States. And you know, right then they were working in that case with the with then governor of Baja California. So you see like groups of criminals who are doing this business and the government is taxing them, getting money from them. And that's a, a kind of modus operandi you see a lot of times through the through this period. You know, you then have, have have moments when the government gets more involved or elements of the state get more involved, but it was never completely perfectly organized at all levels you always have a certain amount of chaos within these things you always have like you know some general can can do something make a deal take over a certain thing some police thing but some police chief uh, some police force but basically you have this system of the plazas established over the years based on the police districts where plaza is a territory and you have a head of the plaza is a drug trafficker who is can coordinate and be the point man to deal with the state, to deal with the government, and kind of organise the other drug traffickers. And you have these incredible stories. If you go back to the nineteen late nineteen seventies, this story uh, of a drug trafficker in Ojinaga, uh, just over the border from Texas, who went to the city of Chihuahua to be named, take over as the head of the plaza. And according to this uh, this testimony, he, he went there and the state police tortured him for two days, water with chilly electric shocks on his genitals, gave him this really heavy torture for a couple of days, and then said, you know, well done, you know, you've got the job. Uh, you stood well to the torture. So that really demonstrates how, again, the state had the upper hand in this. Uh, and then, you know, you have this, this plaza system and then you have, you know, times in the particularly in the 1988 to 1994 presidency of Carlos Salinas and his brother Raul Salinas, you have you know, accusations of, of trafficking kind of managed from a presidential level of money uh, in Swiss bank accounts linked to drug trafficking from the brother of the president. And then you have this seismic change in Mexico in the year 2000, when the pre, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the pre loses power after 71 years in control of the country and at times in control of everything. And you have this multi-party democracy. And in that situation, people didn't really, at the time, when I arrived in Mexico around this time, I arrived in Mexico in the year 2000, I arrived in Mexico, in fact, the day before Vicente Fox took power. People weren't thinking, oh, you know, not really saw the, the significance of the drug trafficking organizations and what they could mean in terms of how they could eventually lead to destabilizing the country at that moment. But you had, they become so rich and so powerful after so many years, working with very corrupt elements of the state. And there was kind of hope that in the new era of multi-party democracy, neoliberal economics, you'd have, you know, be all, everything would be all cosy. You'd have like you know, less corruption, you know, the market working better. But corruption did not go away. It just became less centralized and more chaotic. So suddenly you had maybe a drug trafficker had a deal with a local state police commander but not with the federal police um not with the army or the army is then supporting somebody else so you start to see police forces fight amongst themselves often because they're allied with different drug traffickers and i was you know young journalist covering this you know in 2004 i went up to nuevo laredo the border city of nuevo laredo covering you know, all these bodies hitting the streets you know one time i was there there was a shootout between the federal police and the city police and, you know, one interpretation was that the city police were working with the local cartel, the Setas and the Gold Cartel, 
and the federal police who had a, a deal with the Sinaloa cartel. Now, it's hard to prove a lot of these things. Maybe one of them were honest, once I was honest. And so this violence erupts. Now, getting back to this idea of cartels, was, you know, cartel was a, a, a construct and at times a construct used um, very heavily by American agents to help them build cases, to say, you know, if we want to prosecute criminals, it's much better if we, we have to prove a conspiracy. I want to give that conspiracy a name and so forth. But either way, over the years, the word cartel, the concept of cartel began to mean a lot in the streets of Mexico. So it began to mean something when you have criminals saying the Sinaloa cartel controls this plaza or the Gulf cartel controls this plaza. And then you get these kind of whole new bunch of, you know, fragmentations of cartels arriving, the independent cartel of Acapulco, the Guerreros Unidos cartel, Los Rojos. And if you're living in this place, I mean, they're a real force that people see in their lives. I mean, you know, they're, they're a force which will go to businesses and extort them for money. They're a force which will take over control of local municipalities. And then in this change, in this chaos of, the, of, of recent years, the deal changed, whereas instead of drug traffickers just pay, paying bribes to politicians and say, for example, at the level of mayors, they would demand that mayors pay them a percentage of their budget. So you really have got uh, a powerful organized crime as a powerful force in itself, as well as a very corrupt, fragmented uh, state around as well. Something you can maybe comment on. So there's there's that how the roles have the tables have kind of turned a bit, and then in the 2000s where the level of brutality has just uh, skyrocketed, uh, and and I think it's recent. I listened to one of your interviews, and you said it began somewhere in 2006. I think these beheadings, uh, you know, these stories about where they would sew faces onto footballs and then kick them into football fields where children are, are, are playing football, uh, dissolving bodies uh, in acid. And, you know, I remember a journalist I know in, in Guadalajara reporting, uh, visiting a, a house tw 20 minutes from where I was living, uh, where they found barrels of acid and they were d dissolving bodies. Uh, and so it seems that the cartel members themselves have become much more violent, you know, is it they're using their own drugs, they're involved in these death cults like Santa Muerte? I mean, how do you explain this escalation of this just senseless violence? You know, you can see this, the stories and the individual people, and I've talked to a lot of uh, cartel members and cartel killers or people affiliated to them who commit murder, and you can look at their individual life stories and, you know, they're people who were recruited into the cartel or into organized crime when they were when they were young. Some of them did go through the, the, the path of being policemen or in the military and then going into to work cartels. Other ones, other, others came through street gangs, others, you know, all different routes that people take to end up in, in the world of organized crime. Uh, and, and you can see different stories, you know, there's you know, there are people who are using drugs, you know, using crystal meth or, or smoking crack or, or using drugs while they're doing this stuff. And there are, you know, rituals around it. And you can look at, you know, one cartel like La Familia Michoacana, which became Los Caballeros Templarios, the Knights Templar, who had, you know, very elaborate rituals that actually dress up in medieval armor and cannibalistic rituals and the setas with some rituals. And they had this, you know, cult of the Santa Muerte. But, you know, looking at the bigger picture as to why they commit these acts of violence, I think is a structural reason for it. 
And it's because you had this situation where the state was fragmented and the cartels were fighting with different elements of the state. The state really lost control of the situation. And the cartels began to act increasingly more like paramilitary forces. You know, the, the, the leaders began to act more like warlords, gangster warlords is the name of my second book. And I call you know, I say these are like crime wars. It becomes a mixture of crime and war. You know, they had the weapons. They started, you know, there was this huge trafficking of weaponry from the United States, uh, from stolen military weapons from the Mexican military, from Central American military forces. They had ex-military people there, some you know, ex-Mexican uh, soldiers, some, some uh, people who fought in the U.S. military, uh, veterans of the U.S. military who have then uh, been fighting in Mexico, some uh, veterans of the Guatemalan military. Uh, in Colombia, there was you know, veterans of Colombian military, and then they all mix up with Mexico. And so you have the weapons, you start to have military experience, you start, they start to fight like soldiers, and they start to say, well, how do we control territory? So if, if they have the order from their bosses, you have to control this territory, and you have to, you know, uh, you have to hunt out and kill any members of the rival organization. So how do you do that? So they start to use brutal methods to do that, which is kind of a logical thing to do uh, in in war and violence when you've got no control. And at the same time, you have this technology coming into play uh, with videos, with the internet. And I remember in 2004, there was the decapitation in Iraq of an American um, by the Zakawi organization, I believe. Remember that being shown in full on Mexican TV. I remember I watched it on Channel 40 at the time. The, the, uh, the, 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 actually, the anchor was uh, Ciro Gomez Leyva, a journalist, famous journalist, was the anchor uh, leading that bulletin. I remember when I watched that, and, and he was saying, we've got this video, we'll show it, we'll show it. And right at the end of the news bulletin, they showed that video in full. And when the drug cartels began to use the capitation, it was a bit later, it was really began from 2006. Uh, the guy who was then the head of the AFI, who later became uh, the public security secretary, General Garcia Luna, he said it. He thought the cartels were copying the Al Qaeda videos. There's other sources as well that it could be that one of them is that the Guatemalan um, soldiers used to use beheading during the civil war there, and you had certain Guatemalans coming into the Mexican forces. But anyway, the, the, the beheadings began, began as a way to, to use terror to try and take control territories. And so you started to see these these things. And um, first uh, beheading uh, I've seen documented was in, I believe, June 2006, was two police officers in Acapulco beheaded, had their, their heads put on the wall. Uh, later that year, in September of that year, there was five uh, heads, which there was decapitation and rolled into a a disco dance floor uh, of a club called El Sol y Sombra in Uruapan, Michoacán, by La Familia Michoacana. And then you had this rising thing, like, like they were playing poker and increasing the stakes. And so you had 12 and then 14 and then 18. And then I found myself covering in 2012 an incident where there was 49 bodies, which were all decapitated, all had their hands and feet cut off and were dumped in a, on a road. I arrived uh, in the morgue that was in fact near Monterrey it was in uh, Cadareta where they were dumped you know next to a bigger oil uh, installation so I think the the you see a logic to this this kind of paramilitary logic this logic of terror uh, logic of terrorism uh, and also logic of violence 
against the state sometimes or against the public to put pressure on the state, which does follow a similar logic to some terrorists, uh, which is a bit different, where you have uh, there's a, 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 an academic um, who I cite called Benjamin Lessing who talks about this violent lobbying where you they use violence to try and pressure the state to do things. And, and a classic example of that was what we saw on October 17th in Culiacán, Sinaloa, where the cartel used violence against the state and, 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 and threat of violence against the public, taking over the Culiacán to force the release of Ovidio Guzman, uh, the son of Chapo Guzman. I also had a question about uh, journalism. So, you know, in Mexico, I think it's the highest rate of uh, the assassinations of, of journalists uh, on the planet, if I'm not mistaken, something like one month uh, on average. I know people who have given up uh, on journalism because they've been threatened. Uh, is there a difference between foreigners doing journalism and locals or, or native Mexicans doing journalism in terms of safety? And then how do you see journalism going forward in, in, in such an environment? Sure. I mean, the, I mean, first of all, on the numbers, I mean, yeah, it's certainly one of the worst. I mean, is, you know, sometimes you, you compare by violence per capita. So Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq are, are smaller populations than Mexico. Um, but, you know, it's certainly up there. Uh, the, the, the number of journalists being murdered in Mexico is up there alongside these, these war zones, traditional conventional wars. And yeah, it's been horrific, systematic attack on journalists, and, and I've lost friends uh, and colleagues to to the to the violence. Uh, Mexican friends and colleagues, uh, Javier Valdez was, was a good friend who was murdered in Culiacan in 2017, uh, and also uh, other journalists I've worked with as well have, have disappeared, or and other people who have, have fled the country and various things. I mean, first the attacks on journalists. I mean, no, I think no journalist is is safe working in these areas and there's no way you can have some fear you're you're safer because you're a foreigner um because you're you're british or american uh you know you, you know where you're immune to this i mean for a start there's shootouts happening and, and bullets you know the stray bullets can just hit people um, but also when you have cartels at this level of violence there's, there's no way you can feel you've got some security in various foreigners um, i mean there have been american journalists killed here uh, but for you know, not for some time. In 2006, there was a um, a, a journalist killed, Bradley Roland Will in in Oaxaca. Before that, Philip True was killed in in the late 90s. Down El Salvador, there was a a French uh, journalist killed after he made a documentary about the MS13. So there have been foreigners killed here as well. Uh, but there is certainly the local journalists are extremely vulnerable, particularly. You know, there's a difference, I think, between among Mexican journalists. There's a very, very big world here. You know, among Mexican journalists, and you have the big uh, celebrity Mexican journalists who can be very wealthy. The people working with the big TV stations, you know, famous journalists like uh, you know Carlos Loretta Mola, who are on Televisa, um, and then you have you know all the way uh, across. I don't want to say all the way down, all the way you know across to to journalists working in small towns um, for local papers, local radios getting paid very badly with very little power, very, very vulnerable and living where cartels are very strong. So, so one thing is if you travel from Mexico city to Culiacan or to, you know, Patzingan, Michoacan or to Reynoso, Tamaulipas, you know, these are scary places to work in, but you go there, you, you leave, you know, one thing is, is, is doing that. Another thing is you're living there. So if you, you know, you living, you're living there and you've got stories about these cartels and they're all over the place there. These guys are driving right by your newspaper offices. They see that local paper. They see what you're writing in it very clearly. 
those journalists are particularly exposed. I've got a question that, I, that I've had out my mind, and then as well, it deals with you know friends and family, and just this general image of of Mexico to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, we've heard so many of these stories of brutality that go on, uh, and besides the the cartel violence, you know, well, there's the extortion, uh, the kidnapping, the decapitations. You know, I've lived around it. Uh, I've had my home that I was renting at the time raided three times uh, in two years before I finally relocated. And then a week after I relocated, my immediate neighbor's home, which was connected to mine, was robbed and raided. I've had co-workers uh, kidnapped for ransom. The parents of some of my students kidnapped for ransom uh, and corrupt cops shake me down. But I lived, other than that, you know, relatively okay for the time I was in Mexico. I mean, you're there around this atmosphere. And it, it seems like there's two parallel worlds uh, that exist. And I, I'm trying to figure it out myself. And it's hard to explain to, to people who don't know uh, Mexico because they just write off Mexico as this, like, you know, hell, this failed state, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And, and there's beautiful parts of Mexico. Mexico's a beautiful place. And so it's this parallel universe where we can kind of live normally somewhat in in Mexico, but then at the same time, all of this is going on around us and we might get caught up in it. You know, I, I personally don't feel so safe there anymore, but how do you describe this sort of parallel universe where like you're, you're living there and nothing's, I mean, you, you've been fine, but then all of this is going on around you. And at what point, point would you say you've had enough and you would leave? Yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult to describe that. And I had one piece in the New York Times and the headline, I didn't, I didn't make up the headline, but the headline was the paradox of Mexico's mass graves. And you know, it, sound, it sounds like a bit callous when we're saying the paradox of Mexico's mass graves. But I think there is a paradox there where you have violence around regular life. So you've got a couple of things there. I mean, first you've got areas of the country which are very violent and areas which are not very violent and areas which are medium. So I live in Mexico City and Mexico City is, has got the same murder rate as Houston. Mexico City has not, uh, has not suffered in the same way as some of the other places. So it's quite, you know, pretty, very, quite a, a striking difference between what, what's happening here in the city and in a lot of the, you know, parts of the uh, La Provincia, as they call it. And then some states are much safer. If you look at Yucatan state, it has the same murder rate as Belgium, more or less. So you have these big paradoxes. And then you have Tijuana right now is calculated as being perhaps the most homicidal city in the world. So first you could see different a geographical difference. Uh, and that's kind of true of any or, or most countries when there's periods of violence and periods of, of warfare or, or periods of organized violence. I mean, you know, in some ways you could look at this as being a crime war. In some ways you could compare it perhaps to the to violent episodes when you have a very violent dictatorship, which is killing a lot of people, um, you know, more than that kind of thing. Um, but you can look at different countries there and you can see that, you know, even during you know, the Vietnam War, there was like, I think Saigon was relatively safe for a time, even while there was fighting in, in Vietnam. So you have, have different geographical places. But even beyond that, you've got it more complicated where uh, you have violence happening around normality or, or happening around a regular life. So, you, you know, you go to Tijuana and you think, oh, it's okay that, the lights are still working, you know, there's still a kind of thing there, and suddenly there's a, a very, very extreme murder rate. And then suddenly bursts of kind of craziness come out where you have things like the Alta Defensa uprising, you know, the uprising of vigilantes, um, all cartels suddenly really coming out, like in, in Culiacan, October 17th, when, you know, hundreds of cartel government took over the city. So these kind of things where you have this this phantom uh, and then it comes out into the open, you know, like, you know right there. So 
think that's it's, it's part of, of seeing that that and it is like you know living around a new level of of, of organized violence you know again perhaps compare that to uh, i know the you know what was it like living in um uganda under idi amin um or, or was it like living in in, in in all these kind of different countries when they have uh, very violent episodes ethnic violence or whatever you know and you can look at that it, it, it's probably in a lot of these cases it's quite different you know it's, it's quite complex you have uh, and sometimes some other things like you know i've been to haiti during the earthquake i've been to venezuela um you know which is currently in in, in, in collapse and those are more extreme where you see countries that are really collapsed you know haiti after the earthquake where everything's collapsed you know, Venezuela right now is you know a terrible situation. So you see kind of more extreme situations there than in Mexico. And I mean, it's kind of one of the um, one of the things that, you know I was wondering during you know covering this violence is when you have this level of violence, can the political system operate and can the economic system operate, or will they collapse? And the thing is that they won't necessarily. So so you can actually you know there was questions around a lot of places when elections came up. Are you know are there conditions to have elections? in Tamaulipas, so elections to have elections in Guerrero. And it turned out they could have elections in those places. Generally, the economy is still ticking over. I mean, the economy is not great in Mexico, but it still ticks over. So you kind of, those can carry on despite the violence. And what the real collapse is, is in the question of law and order, the question of the justice system. That is kind of more collapsed in many parts of the country. In your book, I think you touch on three potential solutions. One of them is the, the law and order. But I wanted to ask first about the legalization of of drugs and drug policies, um, you know how how would uh, how would this help to solve uh, the problem? Because you know if, if certain drugs were legalized, would the cartels just uh, find other export destinations or other contra contraband to sell, and the same problem would continue, or you would see like a, a drastic uh, decline in violence? You think if drugs laws were altered uh, and if it would have to happen in mexico uh, as well as in the u.s because um there's a lot of i mean the the main market is the u.s as well you know and how much fault do americans have for this we have to look for solutions hard and experiment and try solutions because it's a critical situation in mexico and and it's getting you know it's getting it's not getting any better uh, it, it, it breaks my heart that I wrote my first book about this in 2011. It was published, and it kind of, you know, kind of had a hope then. You know, uh, I know this is going to be something which, which will, uh, you know, over the years they'd you know, we'd start to resolve. It was almost some kind of blip of crazy violence, and then you know, here we are, eight years later, we're talking about record levels of murders in Mexico and, and crazy stuff happening. So we really need to look hard for solutions. You know, if you look at drug legalization, I mean, no one knows. It's a bit crystal ball exactly what that would mean to try and look into a world if there were you know less with, with less drug prohibition but i think you know you could just by logic you know you can say right now drug cartels criminals extremely violent criminals are making enormous amounts of money selling drugs selling drugs to americans selling drugs in mexico taking drugs to europe i mean that's just a fact that is happening right now you know right now we've still got americans taking you know huge amounts of I mean, they're taking a lot of crystal meth, still a substantial amount of cocaine, still a lot of heroin, and still there's still marijuana money going from the United States to Mexico, still billions of dollars likely of this stuff every year. We know for a fact that there's this, all of this drug money is going to the cartels, and it's part of the reason they're so strong. So one way to look for solutions is how do you reduce that amount of money? And I'm, you know, I'm in favor of drug policy reform. 
um, meaning you know we try and see what can we create in in legal markets and how much can you reduce uh, demand in terms of treatment. Um, it, it's a path. There's discussion about this. I think the marijuana argument has largely been won in many ways, but we're still in a funny place where you know marijuana is only still kind of semi-legal. Um, and, and it's a very patchy kind of network of, of that. And there's still money going from people smoking marijuana in Mexico or the United States to drug cartels, uh, which is stabilizing the country and causing so much suffering. Um, so, so, you know, I really try and move, a, move marijuana to a fully legal market. I, I believe in a fully legal market model for this, a regulated market. Um, that would be something like tequila or whatever. Now, you still got a bunch of other drugs and a bunch of other businesses cartels are in, but it's how do you reduce their power and reduce their power through reducing their resources. Now, when you get to the issue of cocaine, heroin, crystal meth, it's harder. Um, I think we need to have that discussion though about that. Well, I mean, you know, what, what's the deal here? Um, you know, what is the deal here with, with opium um, poppies that farmers grow? What is the deal here with this market? But also, you know, one thing we could agree on is rehab um, can help reduce drug addicts' need to, to buy or the amount they spend on drugs. And, you know, there was one study that said that about 80% of American drug addicts were not getting the medical help they needed. So, you know, really try and push to that medical help and try and reduce what they're spending on drugs would be another strategy as well. And something you recently wrote about, uh, I think a week ago for the New York Times, dealt with uh, gun policies. Uh, uh, and so, you know, um, you've mentioned that as a small solution to the problem. I'm a naturalized Mexican citizen. And after having experienced what I had experienced and my home broken into, I had plans to legally, you know, I'm a firm believer in legal firearms. When I was in some kind of military shop in Mexico and just asked about firearms, the guy offered to sell it to me under the table. But I'm like, well, you know, what good will that do to me if I have to uh, you know, sh shoot someone coming in to my house, you know, in self-defense. So, you know, I'm, mm. I'm all about doing everything legally. And in Mexico, it's really hard uh, to get, uh, there's only one gun store and it's, it's diff a difficult process to get guns um, yeah. legally. But, you know, do you think if we had a situation in Mexico, like in the U.S., where there was a high, I mean, we have problems in the U.S., yes, but I mean, if... If there were a high number of legal gun owners in, in Mexico that could push back against the cartels, do you think we would see less violence as well as, I mean, what's your take in general on, on how gun policies could try and help solve this problem, whether on the U.S. or the Mexican side? So, yeah, I mean, this comes to a new book I'm writing about gun trafficking. So, so first of all, it's, it's like it's simply a fact that enormous amounts of firearms are going from the United States to Mexican cartels. Uh, and, you know, this is an, an indisputable fact. You know, there's been, between 2007 and 2018, there were more than 150,000 guns that have, were traced, were seized and traced to U.S. gun stores and gun factories. Sometimes they're American-made guns. Sometimes they're guns which are made in Eastern Europe, imported into the United States and then sold. So you get guns which are made in a factory in Romania, sold in the United States and used to murder in Mexico. Among these firearms, you also have um, 50 caliber rifles. So you have cartels which are buying 50 caliber rifles. 
they can be they can buy them for like ten thousand dollars a piece. They pay a straw buyer, which is somebody they, with papers they pay to buy them about five hundred dollars to buy one of these guns. Um, they could take them to Mexico, and you saw these fifty cals used in Culiacan. You've seen them in a bunch of places where they're used to attack police. You know, it was one piece of them blowing a soldier's uh, leg off um, in, in there. They were used to, to, to attack uh, in, in the ambush and killing of 13 police in Michoacan. Um, so really giving an edge to some of the cartel forces. Now, uh, I'm, I, I'm part of this book. I'm, I'm look, identifying methods that should be used to try and reduce trafficking. Um, uh, so I'm not getting in, in into the issue of Americans' uh, Second Amendment rights, shall respect people's rights to have guns for self-defense, for hunting, whatever reason they want. I'm just talking about how guns go into the criminal market, how they're trafficked. Then you can look at things like the straw buying, the theft from gun shops, the private sale loophole where guns do go to to the cartels. Now, when you, your, your question you asked there about um, if Mexicans could have guns more easily, if that would reduce violence. Now, the, the thing is, you know, you've got, you've, got, you've got different types of crime. You've got regular common crime, whatever, street mugging, uh, regular burglary by just some, some you know, regular guy, and you've got the issue of the cartels. Now, in the places where the cartels are very strong, if, you know, if, if you, know, you or I have just got a gun, you know, what do you want to, want to go buy, buy ourselves a pistol, buy ourselves a rifle? You know, you've seen, you know what cartel hit squads are. They can be thirty guys with AK-47s, so that's no. You know, you know, you know, you're not good with a gun out. You're not going to, you're not going to outgun these guys. I mean, I go to these places all the time where cartels are, and I see guys openly. The cartel guys openly carrying AK-47s. I'm not going to go in there and outgun these guys. So, in the only the only way you could do that is by forming a militia. But by the time you start forming a militia, and so we saw that with the outer defences, with the self-defence squads. They formed militias, but then again, they didn't solve the problem because then a lot of the militias were themselves drug cartels, who were then under the name of militias doing this stuff, um, and then and then also you know some of them or, or some of them end up extorting and doing all sorts of kind of crimes. So it really gets down. If you're going to form a militia, it gets down to forming a, a police force that works. Now in the United States, um, the reason the United States is not does not suffer from organized crime in the same way. It's not because of regular Americans carrying guns. It's because America has very strong police forces and federal agents. People are not, you know, I think it's, I think there's an, um, an illusion, a fantasy, to be honest, put out by the gun lobby in the United States that, you know, you've got guns, your self-defense and a lot of these people um, who who are there with guns? They haven't got experience shooting people. They haven't got experience dealing with criminals. They haven't got experience fighting gangs and seeing bodies on the street with their heads blown off. They, but they believe this is making them safe. They're safe because the federal and then they have and it also is a big distrust of federal authorities and of policing. But really, it's the police hitting gangs really hard. The reason the MS13 in the United States won't go to your house. And say, give me, give us some money. I mean, they, they do this in some uh, migrant communities, but to a regular American, go to their house and say, pay us some money. It's because they're getting hard by getting hit hard by federal authorities. Um, you know, cartels—they're not scared of some regular guy with a gun. Um, now, you know, in in Mexico, then you get down to like the regular muggers, like you say. And again, I respect people's—you know—like right to defend yourself if, if if you want to have a gun to defend yourself. But then it, is it really defense? I mean, there was 
a situation recently. I was in the Condesa neighborhood, a very nice middle class neighborhood in Mexico City. There was, a, I was, you know, we were out there with a friend, and there was a um, a holdup of a restaurant, and a guy happened to have a gun, and and did try and shoot the attacker, and missed, and shot another person dining there in the head, um, and was then arrested for you know for for tentative homicide. Um, so so is that really defence there? Is it really more guns in an area like Mexico City? Um, you know, is that really going to make things or um, you know better? Uh, and it's saying in Sinaloa, um, when you have the cartel there with the kind of firepower they have, regular people having guns is that really going to make a difference? So 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 I don't really see that as being the solution. Uh, I think it has to be about creating police forces or defence mechanisms. Even community police um, have a role, um, but it has to be some kind of way of you know, you know, rather than just saying that, you know, pumping more guns is gonna is gonna solve this, I just don't see that happening. What about another solution that has been floated about? You know, the US national security state has a long history in Mexico from like as I mentioned, helping create the Mexican intelligence service, co-opting Mexican presidents, uh, and even involvement behind the scenes in the 1968 Tlatelolco massacre, which uh, Sergio Aguayo recently uh, published a book uh, based on these declassified uh, material, how the U.S. behind the scenes was uh, helping uh, the, uh, the then government there. And we have uh, initiatives such as Plan Merida, where the U.S. is spending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, helping Mexican security forces with training, uh, I guess, weapons and logistics to fight the cartels. Um, and most recently, the, there have been some calls to classify drug cartel violence as terrorism, which I suppose would, you know, be some sort of pretext to for, I don't know, a, a NATO invasion or sending a US military down there. Uh, because, you know, now we have Colombia uh, as a NATO global partner, and Brazil has also been invited. But do you see uh, some kind of U US uh, further push of militarization or even something crazy like sending U.S. troops down into Mexico or a heavier U.S. involvement to try to deal with the situation? So it's kind of funny, like, uh, there's, there's kind of been a, 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 a kind of almost like a, a fantasy for some time that, you know, and, you know I've heard this for, for many years, um, you know, it's something you actually see in fiction, from movies like Sicario, where you have suddenly, pick, you know, images of like a bunch of American kind of special forces kind of pouring down into Mexico. I read another fiction book a few years ago where this kind of happened, the kind of American special forces going down. And I remember speaking to some sheriff in Texas a few years ago, so, you know, saying, you know, we, we could go down there and you know name some names. And it was a kind of fantasy of, of, of kind of like, you know, when you see this kind of uh, idea of these cartels, crazy cartels with a bunch of guns, that Americans could kind of go down there and shoot some of these guys. You know, what's, what's the reality of, you know, how could you actually solve the problem that way? You know, even if, Amer you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm worried in the current political situation and there was, Various politicians talking about, you know, making these noises, and, and, and President Donald Trump himself said, like, you know, you know, you know, if we can help you out, um, you know, there is a kind of situation, you know, you could you could you could see it happening, um, almost some kind of raid or something. I, you know, I, I don't see that as being any solution either. I mean, you go, I mean, like, say, if, if American forces were going to going to go into Mexico, to whatever state, and shoot a bunch of cartel people, shoot a leader, you now what difference does that make? The situation. I mean, the Mexican government's been shooting dead cartel people for years. Um, it doesn't solve the problem. There's so many of them. Um, you're talking. I mean, if you imagine that there's been, you know, whatever, 253,000 homicides between 2007, 2018. 
don't know how many of those are cartel numbers, but a substantial number. Loads is imprisoned, and still there's loads more out there. I mean, how many of these guys are there? So, you know, you, you can't just shoot your way out of this problem that easily. And some raid's not going to happen. Now, Mexico, for nationalistic reasons, it's just not on the agenda as well. It's got a very proud kind of history of nationalism to let American forces come in, as, as you know. So, so that's not really on the agenda there. Now, I mean, I think you really do need to beef up the Mexican police forces. You know, it seems like the only, you know, you know it's this combined thing and it's, it's difficult and it's frustrating because when you get time and time again, Mexican police, Mexican military who are themselves extremely corrupt. But like when, I mean, you know, I'm not against the National Guard, which some people were against the idea of a National Guard. I'm not against the National Guard, the idea of a, of a kind of more militarized police force around the country, especially in these, some of these areas that is terror. Try and push this back. I mean, simply having a level of forces trying to reclaim parts of the country. So, okay, have forces in city centers, in, in, in big urban areas. They know we can't have shootouts happening in these areas. Um, but at the same time, you need any other things as well. You have to have hand in hand with prevention programs, you know, real reaching out to hearts and minds and prevention programs and dealing with the issue of guns and the issue of drug money coming in as well. So rule of law, that, that was one of the other things you, you talk about. And so what are some things that the government can do to, to help establish the rule of law again? And as well, you know, I never was a fan of AMLO, but I did have the impression that he was an anti-establishment character who might shake things up. I know the people around me during the elections at the time when I was in Mexico, everyone was freaking out. And I thought that they were they were kind of exaggerating um, uh, regarding uh, AMLO that he was going to like you know turn Mexico into Cuba or something. But I feel that he's been ineffective at every level. And there's what happened with uh, Culiacan recently, where the military was just overpowered by the cartels. Uh, and you know I feel the future of Mexico in the near term is not optimistic. What's your take on? re-establishing the rule of law uh, as well as the future of mexico so i mean yeah i mean it, it, you know it's a huge cha challenge uh, about the rule of law issue and and like the, the difficult thing there, there isn't a clear blueprint there now there was some efforts some good efforts and i mean sadly it's like you, you, you try and cite good efforts in latin america that have worked and then they kind of go wrong so you know you could used to be able to look at nicaragua as being you know this is this is a country where at least it has low crime level and, and, and quite strong policing but then nicaragua you know became very authoritarian and, and killed loads of people you look at chile as an example where they maintained um you know a much stronger rule of law there much more effective policing but then right now you've got people rising up in the streets and people getting killed so it's kind of hard to to cite as great examples uh, some of these some of these countries um but like the idea of uh, of creating an effective rule of law maybe rule of law is like a even ambitious i mean just creating a basic level of order uh, is really an objective for mexico right now um you know not having cartels having checkpoints on roads not having cartels rising up in city centers not having massive shootouts not having these kind of crazy things so a basic level of order is, is right now so, you know and, and, I, and it, it seems again like i mean the the state is the one that can do this. Now, there was, you know, efforts like in Monterrey, uh, 
you say you lived in Mon- in Monterrey or, or in in Monterrey or in Guadalajara. Guadalajara. Like in Monterrey, there was you know promising efforts from the what they called the Fuerza Civil. They kind of rebranded the police force with support from private uh, companies and had this idea of how we create a kind of new police force. And there was certain success there. So how do you try and create models of police which are effective, have less corruption? I think just trying to say having no corruption is ambitious. How do you create, you know, basic models of policing? Now, again, community policing and, 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 and if, you know, maybe there is something in, in, in this idea of out-of-defense as vigilantes. I mean, like, you need to work with the communities or allow a certain level of community policing or, or, or work with these groups, have some kind of concept there. But, like, it, it, it's very, very difficult. Now, right now, the reality um, of Lopes of Ador, as you, as you say, it's, it's, it's not good. Um, I want to have some hope. Um, you know, I wanted to have hope when he won with a big popular vote that he could achieve something. A lot of people were there asking for change, asking for an end to this violence, poverty, corruption. And he's not looking good. He doesn't seem to have a coherent security strategy. I, I hope, I guess the thing is to hope or to pressure to develop one. Um, you know, he has put this resource into this National Guard um, and they've been kind of diverted doing a lot of work on the southern border, rounding up migrants. Um, but, you know, one can, can hope with this um, because the situation is not looking good right now. And I would, I have a, a, a bit of a fear that if there's a real failure of the Lopez Obrador government, there could be a rise of a more right-wing populism in Mexico against crime, against Central American immigration, um, a kind of Bolsonaro-type figure. You kind of see elements of that brewing on the sides right now uh, and that's my fear of what could what that commence could come to if you have a, a failure of this government well if, if that did happen you think that they they'd be able to deal with the situation any better i mean you know again you know into into very um speculative things there but like uh, who, who you know any politician or whoever whoever whatever the politics politics in mexico there needs to be security at the center of political strategy. Um, whoever comes into power, if it's left, if it's right, if it's center, if it's libertarian, if it's more statist, whoever comes in has to have security uh, at the heart of a strategy to, to, to govern this country. And so thinking then uh, about Mexico, are, is there any additional uh, or final thought that you think it's important for, for us to understand uh, or anything that I, that I haven't asked or that you think is important to get across? I guess one thing to, to is kind of, to, you know, you, you say you've, you've lived here, you, you know what it's like, you, you, you've seen this firsthand, but perhaps with some of the audience who haven't, I think to, to, to really sense the human cost of this, the human suffering, what this means, you know, when you see people who have, you know, had their children be snatched away from them by armed groups, um, you know, searching for their loved ones in mass graves, uh, living with this tension. What this means for society is, you know, catastrophic. Um, and it, it's for me, it's a wake-up call. You know, if we look at politics in the world, for me, it's got to focus on some of these really core issues. 
um, and reducing violence is one of them. And this is also the cause of refugees. Those figures just come in actually on the southern U.S. border. Actually, they've reduced the number of Central Americans, but a lot of people applying for asylum are actually Mexican citizens applying for refugee status in the United States, political asylum in the United States, because they're fleeing from the violence here. So this is like destabilizing Mexico, it's destabilizing a bunch of countries. And how you know do you find a solution? It's got to be one of the, the core things when we look at politics anywhere is how do we reduce violence? And in Latin America, it's only been increasing, whereas in many parts of the world, it has been decreasing. Here, it has been increasing. So it's, you know, it's a, real, a real concern that we have to look to for solutions to. All right. And how can people best uh, follow you, support your, your work? And when is the new book uh, coming out? Sure. So I've got my new book on firearms trafficking uh, due out in 2020. You can uh, please uh, buy my other books, El Narco or Gangster Warlords on Amazon or any bookshops. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Yohan Grillo. Um, on YouTube, you, I've just been starting a channel there for some of my work as well. Uh, you can find uh, searching for Yoan Grillo. And I have a website, yoangrillo.com. Uh, I'll spell my name. It's I-O-A-N-G-R-I-L-L-O. All right. Uh, well, that'll do it for this uh, episode. And, and thanks again for your time. And we, we hope you continue to do your good work and stay safe uh, over there in Mexico. Will do. Great to be here. Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.